I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it all and one dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking something I'm still seeking something Hello and welcome to another intergalactic episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we bend the rules of space and time, alternating between the young and new adult fiction of today, tomorrow and yesteryear. On this good voyage through the cosmos, I, Laurie, will be your captain and I'm joined by my stalwart crew, cabin boy Patrick Moon. I take offence to that and I'm not actually going to do this episode now. (laughs) (laughs) Great. <laughs> the space barnacled Brie. I'm not that bumpy. And the wrinkly in both time and face Keithro. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, we've scanned for life between the pages of A Wrinkle in Time, a sci fi written by Madeline, Madeline Longle. Is that how you say it? <laughs> <laughs> That's my best attempt. Madeline Langle. Langle. I think it's Lengel. Madeline Lengel. I think we've had this conversation already. I'm getting serious deja vu. We did, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and isn't it sci-fi, not sci-fi? Uh, what? What? Science fantasy. Is it? What's fantasy about it? Much of it. Sci-fi, mm. fantasy, all one and the same. The Christian bits? <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Published in 1962. Before we dig into it, as always, a warning. Seeking Tumnus is never spoiler-free. Ad-free, yes. Regularity-free, yes. Publishers, (laughs) please send us books for free. Yes, yes, yes. But spoiler-free, no. For example, I might say something like, Keep listening, this book is crap house. And that would be a spoiler of my very own review. But is it... Anywho's, this book has been lauded more than I needed laudanum to get through it. So if you don't want a classic spoiled, go grab it, read it in about 15 minutes because it's so slim, and come back to us here where we left off. Now, no matter how good or bad we might find a book, one thing always makes it a great deal better, and that's a reading of page one by our very own Patrick Moon. Take it away, Moon Man. I will. I feel like I have a disclaimer every time I'm about to read the first page. And this time the disclaimer is that I can't actually find my copy of the book. (laughs) So I'm I'm going to read off this uh, PDF I found on Google, which I don't know. It it seems vaguely familiar. It seems like the first page to me. So I'm going to roll with it. Good luck. (laughs) Do do any of you have the book in front of you? Can you uh, shout out if it differs at any point? Yep. Uh, Chapter one, Mrs. What's it? It was a dark and stormy night. Nope. In her Nope. Just kidding. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It was a dark and stormy night. In her attic bedroom, Margaret Murray, wrapped in an old patchwork quilt, sat on the foot of her bed and watched the trees tossing in the frenzied lashing of the wind. Behind the trees, clouds scudded frantically across the sky. 
Every few moments, the moon ripped through them, creating wraith-like shadows that raced along the ground. The house shook. Wrapped in her quilt, Meg shook. She wasn't usually afraid of weather. It's not just the weather, she thought. It's the weather on top of everything else. On top of me. On top of Meg Murray doing everything wrong. School. School was all wrong. She'd been dropped down to the lowest section in her grade. That morning, one of her teachers had said crossly, Really, Meg, I don't understand how a child with parents as brilliant as yours are supposed to be can be such a poor student. If you don't manage to do a little better, you'll have to stay back next year. During lunch, she'd roughhoused a little to try and make herself feel better, and one of the girls said scornfully, After all, Meg, we aren't grammar school kids anymore. Why do you always act like such a baby? And on the way home from school, walking up the road with her arms full of books, one of the boys had said something about her dumb baby brother. At this, she'd thrown the books on the side of the road and tackled him with every ounce of strength she had and arrived home with her blouse torn and a big bruise under one eye. Sandy and Dennis, her ten-year-old twin brothers, who got home from school an hour earlier than she did, were disgusted. Let us do the fighting when it's necessary, they told her. A delinquent, that's what I am, she thought grimly. That's what they'll be saying next. Not mother, but them. Everybody else. I wish father... But it was still not possible to think about her father without the danger of tears. Only her mother could talk about him in a natural way, saying, When your father gets back. Gets back from where? And when? Surely her mother must know what people were saying, must be aware of the smugly vicious gossip. Surely it must hurt her as it did Meg. But if it did, she gave no outward sign. Nothing ruffled the serenity. And that's the first page, roughly, (laughs) according to this (laughs) somewhat sketchy... It did differ a little bit. Did it? Yeah, but I read the book some time ago and we didn't get around to recording because of life, the universe and everything. And to catch up again for the recording of this episode, I listened to the audiobook. I took advantage of a free trial with some company and... It changed in the audiobook. Uh, nothing important, but it's just funny that they they changed. During lunch, she'd fooled around a little. <laughs> to During lunch, she roughhoused a little. <laughs> She's not that sort of girl. Yeah. There were one or two sections in here where it seems to have been translated from German or something. It says, at this, she'd, she'd thrown D books on the side of the road. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to presume that's meant to be the books. But... So the moral of the story is <laughs> buy legal copies of the books. <laughs> oh, delicious, Pat. Keith, did this purple prose get your parts all poised for performance? Jesus. I wouldn't go that far, but I actually did quite enjoy this opening. We've got this unlikely heroine presented to us, assuming that's where the story goes, and we've got the intrigue of her missing father. So, yeah, I'm on board for it. Bree? Yeah, I totally agree. She's this feisty kid. There's a hint that she's pretty smart. She's got this hook with her missing father. I'm all over it. I wasn't as taken with it. I thought it was a little bit confusing and, I don't know, you might not have been able to tell from the reading alone, but the the thoughts and the interjections there, and I don't know if it's just because of this version of it that I'm looking at as well and I'm like Laurie I I read it uh, a fair while ago now so I'm struggling to remember the the initial read through but just going back through it then it's all a bit confused on the page and it makes for a a difficult experience when you start thinking more about the process of reading rather than just reading 
What about you, Laurie? I think it was at this point of the book that I realised that we'd aimed the age bracket too low again. <sighs> Do you think so? I, I don't think this goes quite as young as some of the things that we've had issues with before, like dipping into tin fry, frying pan man. Is it frying pan? Oh, <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the man is with the cans and the, the pans yeah, that, or that whatever. That was very low, but I still think yeah. this is more late primary than it is young adult. Yeah, potentially. I think this is more versatile. I think it's got more of a range. Yeah, there's a lot more in the themes, I think, of this one right. than yep. the Tin Man, Eden Blyton, or even one of those Judy Bloom fudge book things. There's many layers to those, Brie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Five stars, tell your friends. I still maintain <laughs> that there are fewer layers to that onion then yours is more like a spring onion this to me is a brown <laughs> onion with many layers page one the only other note i had was where's a good hardy boys book when you need one so <laughs> patrick seeing as it's been a while since the last episode remind us why you picked this book that's actually a very good question and one that i'm not entirely sure that i can answer <laughs> myself i did pick it that's a fact. I think we can all agree that <laughs> that is the truth. To be completely honest, I think I probably saw it on the spreadsheet at the table that, that we share amongst ourselves of the various books that we could possibly cover for the show. And it reminded me that I had read it when I was really young. And I don't have much memory at all of reading it. I was probably in early primary school or something like that. And I have a vague recollection that I found it a little bit unsettling at that time and that some of the concepts and things I just didn't really understand. And it, it threw me a little bit. And so I've always been slightly, rather than having fond memories of it, slightly perturbed every time I've seen the cover because it throws me back to this childish discomfort what? Didn't your mother alternate breast milk with Stephen King novels? <laughs> yeah, the Stephen King novels, I would say, leave me with a deep sense of trauma <laughs> rather than being slightly perturbed. I still have nightmares about Misery and Cujo from reading those when I was young. Yeah, so I was curious to go back and just revisit or reopen that old wound, I guess, and see what what it was about this book. I remember your selection of this very differently. You actually selected something else. And then I went, oh, what about A Wrinkle in Time? And you went, oh, yeah. And I said, I really want to read that. And you said, yeah, okay, let's read that. So you changed your selection at the last second. Fake news. Fake news. No, um, that, that, could well have, that could well have prompted it. But, you know, that this is my... This is my recollection of A Wrinkle in Time. And also I've just realised that they're releasing a movie in a couple of weeks after we record this. So it's well-timed in that respect. Thanks, Pat. Keith, as someone who had no interest in picking this book, can you remind our <laughs> listeners what happened? Sure. So uh, we've already met Meg Murray in Pat's page one reading. She feels like an awkward outsider, not only in her school life, but also to an extent within her family. And she's attracting unwanted attention at school from both classmates and the faculty by virtue of her father's unexplained disappearance, as well as her increasing discomfort in her own skin. She does thankfully feel a bond with her younger sibling, the also obtuse Charles Wallace. Believed by many to be simple, he's actually highly intelligent and perceptive in an unnatural way. We're introduced to Mrs. Murray, the intelligent and beautiful scientist and mother, before Charles Wallace tells of his new friend Mrs. Watson who conveniently arrives soon after, 
under the apparent guise of a thieving tramp in a bundle of scarves. Before ending her brief stay, Mrs. Watsett mentions a tesseract, something that causes Mrs. Murray visible discomfort. Oh yeah, there's another two siblings. Twins. Remarkable only for being unremarkable. I actually read the first page and thought, who the hell are these characters? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the twins, I'm not sure their purpose. But anyway, the kids, they go to visit Mrs. Watsett the next day, joining up with an older boy from school, Calvin O'Keefe, who also feels a little out of place. Together they see Mrs. Watsett and meet her friends, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch. Later in a nighttime walk, the kids, along with their three strange new friends, embark on a trans-dimensional journey to find Meg and Charles Wallace's missing dad. The three misses, misses, the three, is it misses? Miss I. <laughs> <laughs> Just roll with whatever you fancy. The three misses show the children a mysterious dark shadow that causes the children to feel a great and powerful evil. With the help of a medium, the children are shown that Earth has a similar dark shadow slash black thing surrounding it. They also learn how they are able to move through time and space. A tesseract or wrinkle in time that takes them through the fifth dimension. Go with it, kids. Don't ask any questions. Just know that a straight line is no longer the shortest distance between two points. They tesser again to different planets, eventually finding themselves on Camazots. Left there with some parting advice from the three missuses, who the kids now know are former stars. Not former child stars on a drug-induced psychotic trip, but actual celestial stars, who gave up their status in the battle against the Black Thing. On Camazots, the children have a semi-planned run-in with the authority that eventually leads them to the entrapped Mr. Murray. Before they can properly reach him, it begins to penetrate their minds. It being the often referred to great power controlling the inhabitants of Camazots and those beyond it. Inexplicably, Meg alone must use her power of deduction and something else in an epic battle to overcome the evil it. There you go. Sounds good. Thanks, Keith. Well, I mean, it doesn't sound good, but it sounds accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Bree, your first cab off the rank. How did all that mesh with your expectation? Did you enjoy it? I had I had no idea what I was signing up for, I don't think. I had a completely different idea of what this book was going to be about. What were you vaguely thinking the book might be about? I thought it would be a period drama. <laughs> <laughs> how, how have you come to such a gross misconception about what this book is? Idea. You thought it was like Outlander or something? Well, I think it's because I saw one of the covers and it had this beautiful oldie worldy kind of picture in it. And yeah, anyway, I figured it was a period drama and that I was going to enjoy listening to you all read this coming of age book, which it was a really good coming of age book in some ways. Were you expecting a highbrow? Meg, I cannot. But you can, Mr. Fogarty. No, Meg, I cannot. Yes, I thought I was doing another Anne of Green Gables slash Little Women style. And what I got was a very different coming-of-age novel. So this one was written 50 years ago, and if you, or more than 50 years ago, and if you put that into the context... There wasn't a huge amount of sci-fi around at the time. There was probably even less sci-fi with uh, teenage characters or children characters as the main protagonists. 
there was probably less with a feisty, smart, intelligent, slightly awkward teen or preteen, I can't remember how old she is, struggling with all of the things going on in her life. So she's bored at school. It sounds like she is struggling to make friends. It sounds like she has this incredible family that has had this horrific thing happen with the disappearance of her father. So from that perspective, I can appreciate the novel. But is is what I sense <laughs> is forthcoming. But yeah, it is a but. Does it work for me in a modern context? I think there are some some issues with it. I didn't gel well with this concept of a tesseract and this concept of something greater than us holding all of the strings. The religious overtones for me were incredibly strong and I know that that apparently happens a bit in sci-fi and in fantasy with the dark and the light and the good and the evil and those sorts of things. What I did appreciate about it was this desire to be different. I think Meg fighting and her family fighting against conformity and sameness on the um, planet of comatose, comatose. I think that was really (laughs) comatose. Comatose. That's exactly right. It's kind of what it felt like sometimes. And I think that was quite nice. But it was the the dark and the evil and the angels and the Mrs. What the Fucks type stuff that... (laughs) (laughs) lost me along the way there are some sweet moments with her and calvin this what the hell is calvin doing in the middle of this book he just seems to appear along the way and go for the journey i I sort of didn't understand what his character was adding other than perhaps you know a friend for meg and another person who struggles with fitting in along the way i really liked the relationship between Meg and her younger brother Charles Wallace. He's a bit of a bit of a cool little guy, right? That was nice. That's what I think. What do you think, Keith? Did you like Charles Wallace? He was a bit of a dude. Yeah, he was okay. He was a bit um prattish. Yeah, I thought Charles Wallace was a bit big for his boots. <laughs> I, I think I almost preferred him when he became this evil robotic smart talking When he conformed Beast of a kid. Well, he he wasn't conforming. He had been taken over and was effectively a zombie, which they even referred to at one point. Mm. Here in this book, we had a truly classic set of young protagonists thrust into the evils of the adult world, ill-equipped, underinformed, and poorly prepared for what was to come. It's this that makes this sort of book so appealing. It's a David versus Goliath battle against all odds. Surely these kids cannot overcome this great evil. Hyperbole aside, I found this book to be interesting, engaging, and well-written. The pace was a little frenetic at times, considering the heavy science fantasy included, but that was surely done for two reasons. One, it's a kids-slash-young-adult book, and two, you can't explain magic. I'll throw it open to you guys. Is it magic in this book? What is the phrase? Any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic? So... So So it's an advanced technology? Maybe. It does get a bit spiritual at times, though, so who knows? Isn't the implication that throughout that her father is, Meg's father is this great scientist and so he's been able to unlock the the secrets of tesseracts and whatnot? That's the one of the implications, but when we meet him, it seems far from the truth. Well, he's he's only scratching the surface, really. There's definitely 
the idea that there's more to be found and he's he's not mastered it and the the what's and whoever's are certainly a bit more adept in the the whole thing and they're more aware of what's going on out there in the universe but right for me it's that it's it's the very last sentence where the mrs what's just disappear in a gust of wind that makes me go ah mm. are they yeah. leading you too strongly towards this being a another aslan <laughs> yeah yeah I'll, I'll get to that so Hang on, before you move on, I kind of got yep, yep, the yep. feeling that the misses that they were just like, Ugh, how do we explain science to these primitive <laughs> apes? It's magic. <laughs> Perhaps. But they did quote passages from the Bible and talked about maybe what you're saying is true still, that they were putting it in a relatable way to these foolish pea-brained humanoids. Right. Perhaps. I don't know. That's a good explanation for it if you wanted to swing it away from being allegorical well i mean the only time that charles wallace really got an understanding of what was what they were singing about or what they were talking about in their own language these creatures is when that he mind melded with them basically and then they were trying to get him to explain it to everybody else and i I don't think they had any hope really of explaining it that was one of the interesting parts actually the way that the different beings had different ways of interpreting what was happening around them, particularly the creatures. What was it called? Something beast. Aunt beast. Aunt beast. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Going back to the dad, though, wasn't he part of some secret government experiment where they were trying to tesser their way onto Mars? Yes, that was the concept, yeah. They got it wrong. They predicted wrong. If they'd added an extra letter, Tesla, all they have to do is Tesla to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because that then makes him less of this this renegade fighting against this dark, black, whatever it's called. You know, it was just a mistake that he ended up there. I don't know. It didn't go into much detail explaining that, but oh, I don't think he ever intended to find the black, the darkness out there. I think he was just trying to like somebody else went through the Tessa first and mm. didn't come back, so he thought, "Oh, I better go see what happened." Right, and tried it himself, and he ended up yeah in the grasp of this great evil. There's a lot of hero worship on Meg's part Hmm. relating to her father. And so for the first portion of the book, you get this sense of him as the grand hero who's going to solve everything, who's out there righting wrongs and all sorts. And then when she actually meets him again, he's quite helpless and quite confused and really not the larger-than-life figure that she had built Mm. him up to be. And that's a revelation for the reader, but also for her as well. She's quite disappointed in him. She's a bit of a shit towards him, actually, for a while there because he can't just make everything right. He can't just correct the the mind-meld, hypnosis, conformity thing that's gone on with Charles Wallace. And so he's certainly not infallible or godlike or a hero in the traditional fantasy sense by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, he's definitely not the hero in the story. But there there must be something more to him for the simple fact that it was keeping him entrapped the way it was. Getting back to my thoughts, overall, I thought it was a pretty well-written book. It was an appropriate length and it had an interesting ensemble of players. It curiously features both particle physics and increasingly prevalent allegorical interjections. Then there's the sweet-smelling, blind, rhetoric-filled, furry-tentacled space creatures who are thankfully (laughs) fully first-aid trained when it comes to treatment of injuries caused by the black thing. For me, the book 
in whole was unfortunately let down by the final hero's journey, culminating in a sickly sweet ending that washed away just about all of my earlier enjoyment. I just didn't like the continual reminders that there are some things we can't understand or explain. Mm. What did you think, Laurie? I thought it was strangely more than the sum of its parts, but some of those parts were chuff and annoying, man. <laughs> just mm. like the ending, the sickly sweet ending where love is the answer, love will destroy the darkness, love is hope, etc., etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really loved the wrinkling, the three witches, who I feel now strongly inspired the witches from The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. I love them, and I love a child genius. I love a feisty female lead protagonist, and I love adventuring around space fighting an almost infinite and irrepressible darkness. But I just didn't love this book. I'm middling interested to find out what happens in later books, because apparently it's a series. But I feel that if the whole series were as worthy of mention that everyone feels that Wrinkle is, I would have heard about the series and had it on my radar a lot more strongly a long time ago. Now, to be clear, I didn't really enjoy myself as much as I thought I might, but I think a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old would eat this up and I would heartily recommend it to them. Young and new adults should probably go read some Ursula Le Guin, a legend not just of fantasy, but some pretty cracking sci-fi too. I was very sad to hear of her passing early in 2018. It it wasn't a stinkle in time. I think I just read it 30 years too late. Pat? I agree with you more so than with Keith on this one, which... I don't want to become the trend of the podcast, but it seems to have become the trend of the podcast at times. Uh, I, I didn't really love it. I didn't, in fact, really like it. I thought the characters were all a bit irritating. It, it falls on some of those plot points that you see in the movies and particularly horror movies and the like where they say, whatever you do, don't separate, don't go down there by yourself, etc. And then five minutes later you're watching the characters through some plot contrivance being separated and having to do the exact thing that they've been told not to do and and whatnot and it it happens in this book exactly that way and it's just frustrating to watch that kind of crap over and over and over again I feel like I've seen it a thousand times at this point the science elements were good they were interesting I could see how they were pioneering for their time but the mixing of those elements with the childhood fantasy type stuff didn't work that well for me. I think probably my biggest complaint is that the scope of the whole book seemed so dramatically smaller than what I thought it could be. It opens with these possibilities of science and technology and of the Tessa abilities that are being developed or that the the Watsits ladies, the missuses, whoever's that they can deploy. It seems like, oh, you can go anywhere in the universe. You can do anything you want to. And you really set up the possibilities of that. And then the freaking book spends all of its time on this boring ass planet with 
obviously the intent is to to show societal conformity and this kind of thing all the kids bouncing their ball in rhythm with one another and but it's it's boring from a, a reader's perspective if you're going to give me some sci-fi give me something that's interesting rather than a suburban street with children bouncing their ball and they just keep going back to that same environ over and over again despite some detours into the mother-like wookies who have first aid certificates <laughs> it's it's it was disappointing and i think if you want some real nice innovative sci-fi then just watch alien that's better <laughs> pat i was thinking since the start of the episode where you mentioned that it troubled you somewhat was the part that troubled you i don't know if you remember specifically but the one thing I did find a little bit creepy about the itch, the, the the darkness, the big bad in this book was the the way that it was trying to trick, I think, Meg at this point into being sucked into its mind control. And that was mm. by doing the times tables and trying to trick her into falling into a rhythm. And later on, I think it was a heartbeat or something similar. Yeah. And, Controlling and, the breathing and yeah, heartbeat. And I actually thought that was a pretty clever way of demonstrating you know, a mechanism for taking control of somebody's mind. You get them into a pattern and then they get stuck in that pattern because you lock them into it and then take control. Is that the kind of thing that scared you or was it something else? I It may have been that. And honestly, I can't remember that well, but I think potentially it was more the idea of tessering itself, which we haven't really talked about very much, but it seems very similar to going into a wormhole or something like that where you're moving really rapidly from point a to to point b and for the the kids occasionally it was a pretty unpleasant experience where because the ladies the missuses these multi-dimensional or multi-dimensional beings beyond our own dimensions they're quite comfortable and au fait with the idea of tessering and moving through the fourth and fifth dimensions or whatever they are and occasionally you have to move through the second dimension alone and it's an uncomfortable experience for the people because they're no longer in the, the three-dimensional space they're used to or the fourth dimension with time or whatever but they're, they're compressed to a, a flat plane and it's weird and it's difficult to envisage as an adult. And I think as a, a young kid, all of those sections were just kind of a bit creepy or weirded me out a little bit. Mm. I think it all speaks to your summary, Laurie, that the whole is not equal to the sum of the parts. There's so much in this that's interesting and could be explored in a better way, but it doesn't do it as effectively as it should have. It just left me a little bit cold, ultimately. I do wonder where it goes next, but I don't know if I can be bothered finding out. <laughs> I don't even wonder. <laughs> Look up the Wikipedia entry. Yeah. Yeah, there's another f- four books, I think, which is too many for me to be tempted even remotely, even though it is a relatively brief read. Hmm. Can I just do a, a postscript? On the Ursula Le Guin topic, I was really sad to hear that she had passed away as well. And I know I've talked about it before on the podcast, that I, but I don't, I don't know if I specifically mentioned the title, but when... I used to sit on the floor and be read to by the the librarian in school, which really fostered that love of fantasy for me. What she would read was the Earthsea Quartet and remembering hearing the Wizard of Earthsea for the first time being read aloud was just such a fundamental experience in where I got my love of reading from and my love of books and particularly of the whole fantasy genre because it was hearing that stuff just blew my mind. I thought, holy crap, there is so much good stuff to be had out here and i think i I just started devouring fantasy at that point i think maybe i dipped into 
the Hobbit and books of that kind at that point. But yeah, really, just really sad. Really sad when those people who have such a formative influence on you leave the world. And I certainly think she left the world a better place than she arrived. It's a good chance to reflect on it. Uh, hearing that, you should have really stolen Wizard of Earthsea away from me rather than Wrinkle in Time away from Bree. There's still a chance. <laughs> True. If I had a crystal ball, I, perhaps I would have done that. And I would like to go back and read the Earthsea Quartet again now because it has been a long time. I haven't read it again since then. And by all accounts, it, it holds up really well. So maybe that's something for the, the future. Well, I had bumped it up the list hearing the sad news, so you, you won't have to wait too long. Perfect. Sorry, Laurie. Scoring. In our time-honoured tradition of aligning stars to characters, one star misses what the shit. <laughs> Two stars, Calvin, pleasant enough, but what was the point? Who was Calvin? Can, can I get a reminder? Well, there you go. Exactly. Completely <laughs> forgettable. He was the third twin. Pleasant enough, but forgettable. Number three, Mrs. One of the Watts of Things only occasionally had real substance. Meg, good value, if a little rough around the edges. Five stars, Charles Wallace, a child prodigy work of genius. I don't know why you're so high on Charles Wallace. Charles Wallace was a bit of a prat. I thought he was adorable. Oh. No, I really quite liked him. He was... He was so precocious. He was full of pizzazz. Yeah, but he's five. What do you expect for a five-year-old? Your standards are high. <laughs> I, do, I do have high standards. <laughs> Patrick? Uh, I, well, certainly not a Charles Wallace. It's a, one of the Mrs. What's-a-Majiggy-Middleys uh, for me. It, number three. Lot, lots of good pieces. Yeah, number three. Lots of good pieces, lots of good ideas, but it never pulled it together as, as far as I was concerned. It, yeah, no no good. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm on board with you, Pat. I would say three stars, Mrs. What's-a-Namey. Occasionally had substance, but, yeah, you're right, never really came together. Yep, I'll join the three-star train. It's, if only for the fact that it was intended for a young audience. Bree, bring it home. Yeah, look, it is a three-star, but it's for me it's got more value than just a little bit of substance because of what it represents to the time that it was written. However, in terms of pure enjoyment, it's definitely three. Yeah, it's so hard to separate those things when you know that you're reading something of cultural significance, but even so it's just not quite suitable for the modern age like the american constitution <laughs> <laughs> but it's still worth it's still worth reading it because um because of that history and it's still got some really good strong messages and it's still one of the better female protagonists that you'll find for that kind of age group i think you can do better yeah, I still think that for someone that's maybe 10 or 11 or 12, then you'd probably get a lot of value out of it, a lot more than somebody that's triple that age. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yep. Yep. Are we descending into the bitter twilight of our lives where we just <laughs> rag on everything that Embracing causes our it. <laughs> We've loved a lot of books on this Yeah, podcast. I feel like we've been too high on some of them. But I, I seriously think we tend to rate higher on books that are aged more at 
17 or 18 or 19 year olds rather than 12 year olds yeah which is a natural thing which is i try to keep my scoring aligned with the demographic for the book but it's very difficult to when you've not enjoyed it yourself Mm. you find it very easy to put yourself into the the mind of a seven-year-old child (laughs) (laughs) well maybe a five-year-old at the moment but sometimes yes (laughs) you know as as much as i ragged on it i still gave it a three and that's pretty good but one thing i'm really looking forward to is the movie i just watched the trailer this evening prior to recording and i think it looks pretty good did you not think the animation looked a little bit naff? Yeah, the animation wasn't like super top tier, but I liked the choice of casting because I'm a terrible racist, I think. I imagined everyone in this book as being white. And <laughs> I think in the movie that most of the like the children, um, I, can't, I can only remember the lead character, Meg, appeared to be African-American and it had Oprah Winfrey as one of the witches, one of the Mrs. Has, has Oprah Winfrey acted? Did I just call her Oprah Winfrey? Uh, has Oprah Winfrey ever acted in anything before? Yes. 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 Very famously. The Colour Purple. The Colour Purple is the, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. She's in a few things. I've, I've not seen her in anything. I was just slightly concerned by her acting credentials. Right. And it's also got Mindy Kaling. I'm not a fan of the Mindy Kaling show at all. I've never seen an episode, but I was a big fan of her in The Office. (laughs) How can you not be a fan of something that you've never seen? Can you be a fan of something you haven't seen? Right. I I took it as being like you were opposed to it as opposed to being non-fanatical. Well, I'm kind of opposed to it. I'm never going to watch it. but It's not bad. It's actually quite reasonable. Is it? And the third witch was Reese Witherspoon. So an interesting mix there of actors. I thought the tension of the trailer was pretty decent. And the father, as I imagined him in the book. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Nope. I didn't, and I would have appreciated some forewarning. Oh, well, we can pause while you watch it now. Great. I will click play. The final scene, they might be able to improve on the book quite a bit in a movie. Right. It looks interesting. I don't know if I'm a fan of the costumes and the grand nature of the way they're presented. I think they're hiding the extra legs. Like, I think the skirts, the dresses are so big because they're hiding the extra centaur-like legs. But I just thought they were too grand, whereas in the book they were not attempting to be elegant or grand in their appearance at all. They were almost like hobos or something. Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. They didn't feel the need to impress with aesthetics. Might be a bit hard to convince Oprah Winfrey to <laughs> dress up like a hypo. Just, just leave your tracksuit pants on, love. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, it looked interesting. Like, I, after reading the book, I really had little interest in watching the movie, but having seen the trailer now, I'm, I'm slightly more interested. I don't think that the 3D effects are that bad, except for one particular creature, this big green sort of... Yeah, the the flying thing. Yeah, 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 that type thing. It looked a bit low budget. It, it looks like a cross between a early 2000s Pixar movie with a live-action movie in yes. those portions, which yeah. was an unfortunate look, but we'll see what happens. But there are so many good movies floating around at the moment that I don't know that I am going to rush out to see it, but we shall see. Hmm. 
next episode, we're once again pushing ourselves onto the bleeding edge of YA fiction, as Brie introduces us to Night Swimming, a book by a 24-year-old Australian author, Steph Bow. Will it be another Lorinda? Only time will tell. Until then, if you're trying to touch the stars, be a little more like Dr. Alexander Murray and a little less like Harvey Weinstein. Oh, no. And keep reading. Too soon. I'm still seeking Do we have anything else to address before we wrap up? Um, should we should we talk about our authors writing in to listen to episodes? I'm sorry, which, what? which authors might you be referring to? Then? <laughs> I was just thinking about Christopher the, Pike, the Christopher Pike experience, where I wanted to like crawl under the desk and top myself. <laughs> did he ever have any feedback on the episode? No, which I'm not surprised about. But he did request a link, and I did provide the link. So, <laughs> having heard nothing, it's not unexpected given some of the content there. <laughs> Thanks mainly to Bree and Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I seem to remember you and I enjoying it a bit, didn't we, Keith? Right, we, saw, we sure did. <laughs> You're just going to reinforce that position. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I'm sure Christopher just can't help but continue to listen to Seeking Tumnus, so we wanted to right. <laughs> bag it home that he was a great author and we loved his book. Uh, we did. Oh, can't dear. get enough of it. Anyway. Thanks for reminding me of that, Pat. (laughs) 